Matthew chapter uh, 12 is where we are at, are at today. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And I'm going to read through verse 21. Just follow along in your Bible as I read in mine. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? Now he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the Sabbath is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered, into, entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand and, and asked him, Is it lawful to heal? They asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more of more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But when the Pharisees saw, saw, saw this, they went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make it known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Let's pray and ask God for his help. Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. Illumine this text. God, within our own understanding, within our own eyes, we don't have what it takes. But speak to us this morning. Teach us what this means. Convict us and bring us to the face of Jesus so that we might experience him this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love this analogy that, uh, that a preacher once told. He's also a father. and I'll just use the analogy. Uh, he said his, his kids went to a school carnival. And at the school carnival, his kids were given four goldfish. You guys ever win goldfish as a child? So they bring home the goldfish and, you know, yippee for the parents, right? Because now we've got to figure out what to do with these fish, right? In my house, we just flush them right down the toilet. There's a little home for the goldfish, all right, in the sewage system, all right? I'm just kidding. Anyway, so they don't have a tank. So looking at tanks that Saturday and, you know, 50 to 70 bucks for these tanks, he finds one tank that is, is been used, and it's kind of sitting off in the corner, $5. And it's already fit with, like, the gravel and the filter and everything. So he buys this $5 tank, and it's disgusting and nasty and filthy. And so he takes it home, and he cleans it out really good, puts the four fish in there, and they look really good in their new home for the first day, all right? 
Sunday morning, they've lost one. All right, a little floater. Take it out. Monday morning comes, and uh, the second fish has died. By Monday evening, the third fish has also gone belly up. Doesn't know what's wrong, so he calls up a fish guy in his church. Says, can you come check out this tank, figure out what's going on? The guy comes out and immediately knows what the problem is. The father washed the tank with soap. And evidently, that's like a big no-no in the fish community. And so this is the analogy that this pastor made, and I love it. He said, um, he said sometimes in our zeal to clean up or, or to clean others up, we use killer soaps, condemnation, criticism, nagging, fits of temper. And we think that we're doing right, but our harsh, self-righteous treatment is more than they can bear. So I want to talk to you today on the theme, don't be a jerk. Amen? That's the point. Don't be a jerk. Now we've, uh, in the scriptures here, in chapter 11, we've, we've um, been, well, first of all, Mar- Matthew has brought us face to face with Christ, the King of all creation. And in chapter 11, chapter 12, we're seeing various responses to Jesus. So chapter 11, you might remember, we saw the responses of doubt, the response of dissatisfaction, the response of disinterest. And then we saw that one positive response, the response of childlike trust. Now as we get into chapter 12, we're going to see some more various responses to Jesus. And so today we're going to look at two responses. These are two jerk-like responses to Jesus. That's a big theological word, I know. Jerk-like, all right? It means that you're really mean and jerky, okay? Two jerk-like responses to Jesus. And then we're going to sort of take that and contrast those responses to Jesus with who Jesus himself actually is. And we're going to find that Jesus is like the anti-jerk. He's gentle and patient and kind. Are you guys following me with all these complex, like, thoughts and words? So first, the two jerk-like responses. The first jerk response is this, judgmental. So some people, as they come face to face with the king, they are judgmental of him. Is it possible to be judgmental of Jesus? To be critical of Jesus? Well, evidently, there are people who find out uh, ways to do so. Now, in the second century, in one of the premier schools for Christianity, uh, there was one young man who uh, was, was really serious about being a Christ-like follower of Jesus. And And he asked his superior, he said, what must I give up in order to rightly follow Christ? And the response that his superior gave him was this. Let me read this to you. The response was this. If you want to, like, 
really follow Christ, this is the second century, meaning 1,800 years ago, he says, you must give up colored clothing for one thing. Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that is not white. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments and don't eat any more white bread. You cannot... You cannot, if you are sincere about obeying Christ, take warm baths or shave your beard. Shave your, that, one, that one's fine with me. To shave is to lie against him who created us, to attempt to improve on his work. Now, that seems absurd, doesn't it? But I wonder if in, in another 1,800 years, how many of our man-made traditions and rules will sound just as absurd judgmental. It's based on creating these, these additional man-made rules. Now let me just define this word judgmental for you, because I think sometimes we just throw around the word judgmental uh, all the time, like er at everyone. You know, anybody that says anything of any critical value is, in your eyes, judgmental. Eh, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. Meaning, for someone who's like serious about holiness, serious about following Christ, like just looking at the Word and, and wanting to help disciple you and, and grow you, and they gently, uh, they gently call out some things in your life that they see, well, that's not being judgmental. That's actually being loving, right? That's actually being like life-giving. Judgmental, on the other hand, has to do with, uh, with additional man-made rules. It has to do with legalism. It has to do with uh, creating the, these, these above-the-line kind of uh, uh, set of values and traditions that you must attain and cling to if you're really going to be a righteous person. Here's what I mean by above-the-line. I wish I actually had a line. Here we go. Let's make one. Montreal, come here really quick. Let's make a line. Grab the other end of this. Eden, come here, babe. Hold this right here. Come on. Come on. All right, we're going to just create a line. Uh, this is just going to help, help you guys. Hold it right there, okay? All right, so here's, you guys see this line that I just made? You like that? All right, we'll use my cup. So we, our interpretation needs to be of Scripture, like what we understand Scripture to say, what we understand God to require of us. It needs to be right on the line. Make sense? So right on the line is where we need to be. There are some people that go below the line, some people that go above the line. Let me give you an example. Do not steal. Um, on the line, do not steal would mean what? Thank you. Good. <laughs> All right. Below the line would say, well, it's okay to steal as long as nobody's going to be harmed by it. As long as nobody's going to be hurt, it's okay to steal. Above the line would be to say, don't take back what someone stole from you because now you're stealing from them. Oh, the Bible doesn't really say that. You see, you're adding additional stuff here above the line, and you're taking away stuff here below the line. Look, at, look in verses 1 through 8 really quick in your text. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, with this whole Sabbath bit. Pop quiz here. Are the Pharisees going above the line or below, below the line? I, I heard it all. All right, 
Who says below? Who says above? Above? Okay. Above? Tevin, why are they going above the line? How so? Exactly. Exactly. You guys are good. They're, they're adding to what the Scriptures say. They're, they're adding additional things that God never said. They're saying, if you're going to be righteous, and if you're going to be, going to be holy, then you must do these additional things. This is all based on what was, uh, what was called the tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders, it was all of these additional rules, like, like here's what God says, and we want to be serious about that. And so in order to be serious about that, we're going to have a whole other set of laws that you must follow if you really want to be righteous, if you really want to be good with God. The tradition of the elders, above the line sort of problem. Listen, the, Jesus Christ himself is enough of a stumbling block. Right? Like, he's the biggest stumbling block there is. got to come to Jesus, and you're, you're hit with him, and you've got to recognize that you are under authority, that you have been created, and that he's king, and he's Lord, and that you must turn from your sin, and that you must embrace him as your Savior, and he is your only hope. Like, that is a stumbling block. The problem with the Pharisees is they've created a, a hundred more stumbling blocks. All of these above-the-line sort of, uh, uh, of, of rules that they have put into place. And so here they come to Jesus with these rules because His disciples are picking grain so that they might eat. And it's the Sabbath day. If you're new to Christianity, the Sabbath day is part of the Ten Commandments. It's the Fourth Commandment. It says to take one day out of seven and, and commit it as a day of rest and as a day of worship. And according to the Jewish law, that was Saturday. And so this is taking place then on a Saturday. And, uh, and, and, and uh, in addition to the law, the, the Pharisees have said, you can't even pick a single head of grain. Because if you do that, now you're reaping. And if you're reaping, then you're working. Above the line. Jesus is saying, well, that's, that's not actually true. You're adding to Scripture. You're putting on a heavy burden, a heavy weight on these people. So in verse 3, Jesus responds to their criticism. And he says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? David went into the temple and he actually ate the bread that's dedicated to the priests. And if you were to go back, you'd find that David was almost, he was near death. He was starving to death. Gets to the temple, goes in, eats the bread. Was David wrong? The scriptures don't say that he was wrong. The scriptures do not condemn David for doing that. He goes on and he says, um, he says, what about the priests? The priests actually work. They, they labor. They, they, they physically do things on the Sabbath to serve God's people. Yet they are not condemned. See, what he's saying here is, is the law of God is given to serve God's people. It's not the other way around. God's people are not given to serve the law. God's law is there to, to give life. God's law is not there to take life. Jesus is just simply showing. I mean, he's not breaking the law. He's not getting rid of the law. He's not ignoring the Sabbath day. He's showing us God's common sense intent for his law. This is the way he treats those 
who respond to him in this judgmental, kind of above the law, adding to the law kind of way. And people do this today. Let me just give you a couple examples. I almost hesitate giving you examples because I don't want to narrow your thinking because there's hundreds of different examples of how we add to the law on both conservative and on liberal sides. Additional requirements if you really want to be holy. But just a couple examples. So one that's sort of from the past, maybe 30 years ago, that I don't hear anymore, thanks be to God, it would be like interracial dating and marriage. Uh, you shouldn't marry a white guy, or shouldn't marry a, a black guy, or Hispanic, or whatever. You shouldn't mix the races because you know God just intended us to uh, to to be you know our own, stay with our own species, if you would, right? And if and if you end up with an interracial child, then what do you have? Who is that, right, Nick? We're like, who are you, right? All <laughs> <laughs> right, what's that? Um. Now, that's above the law. That's adding the scriptures and trying to spiritualize it. The Bible never said that. And you know, at the end of the day, you don't have a problem with black people. You don't have a problem with white people. Really, what you have a problem with is God. You have a problem with God who created all humanity equal. That's what you have a problem with. Another example, just briefly, um, alcohol. Alcohol. So, so alcohol. Uh, be not drunk with wine, right? So drunkenness is always, always, always a sin. Do not get drunk. It's pretty clear. Don't get drunk. Now there's some who kind of go above the line. They say, and don't even take a sip of alcohol. Don't let alcohol touch your lips. Well, that's, that's above the line, right? And so some of those folks, they're going to have a problem in heaven. Because <laughs> that's in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, that in heaven at the feast, we're going to be served aged wine. The good stuff. Right? <laughs> Above the law sort of problem. Above the, we're, at, we're adding to, if you want to really be holy, then you can't do these things. Or I could go on, uh, women as an example. Now, of course, in the scriptures, we see that God has called men to step up as the head of, and lead churches and families. But then we go above the line, and, and there's been movements where, where women are told not to say anything, or you must do everything that men tell you to do. You must submit to all men everywhere. Well, it's above the line. We're, we've now said too much. We've gone way, too, way beyond what the scriptures have called us to. And you see, these people, these men who would, uh, would, would be uh, enforcing this, they don't have a problem so much with women. They have a problem with God. And they would really have, the, have a problem with the Jesus who rebuked one of his own disciples because this disciple was dismissing a woman who had broken a jar of alabaster over his feet. Above the line. That is a response to Jesus. People who come to Christ and they say, no, even Jesus isn't good enough. Even Jesus isn't, isn't holy enough. And we do this in all sorts of ways. All sorts of ways do, will we add to the scriptures. You must vote Republican. Or you must vote Democrat if you really want to be a good Christian. If you really care about Christianity, you better vote for Donald Trump. If you really care about Christianity, you better not vote for Donald Trump. <laughs> right? We do it both ways. 
We're always adding to the Scriptures and putting on these additional requirements. You must recycle if you really want to be righteous. You must live in poverty and give everything that you have away and live a radical life if you really want to be righteous. Or no, you must get rich. You must have many blessings and have a big house if you really want to be righteous. You must wear a suit to church on Sundays if you really want to be righteous. No, you must wear ripped jeans and t-shirt and a snapback if you really want to be righteous. You see what I'm saying? Across the board, we're constantly adding to the scriptures. Saying this is really what righteousness looks like. No, we need to be right on above the line. Why? Because adding to the scriptures, adding to what Jesus says, does not achieve righteousness. It ruins the gospel. We're saying when we do that that Jesus is not enough. He's not enough. It's Jesus plus all of these traditions and all of these man-made rules and all of the... Listen, our culture needs to take second place to the gospel. Be careful that you and we as a church don't enforce a culture and say you must adopt this culture in order to really be religious. My white culture needs to take a step back. Urban culture, suburban culture, reformed culture, Baptist culture, whatever you want to, black culture, Hispanic culture, all of these things must take a second seat. At the end of the day, culture is malleable. At the end of the day, culture is eventually going to be absorbed into, into the culture of heaven. What matters is the truth of heaven, and that is Jesus Christ. And so let us never put anything additional on anyone and say you must adopt these extra-biblical ways, values, cultures in order to really be righteous. Amen? Secondly, Secondly, uh, the, the second jerk-like response. Remember, we're talking about jerks today, right? Second jerk-like response is that of the schemer, the one who's scheming. Kids in the room. I see some kids in the room. All right. You kids ever, have you guys ever had a friend who just likes to trip people? Have you ever had a friend like that? Well, this would be, I'm speaking to the kids right now. Do you currently have a friend that likes to trip people? <laughs> I'm thinking of kids because generally it's a childish thing to do, right? Kids, do you have any, have you, any friends that, like, just walking by in line and this friend just goes, whoop, <laughs> constantly. Like, you know that well, as you're coming up to this friend, you just kind of high step a little bit because you know that the foot's coming out to try to trip you up. I know, did you have friends like that? Did you do that? Was that you? No recollection? How many of you think Montrell was that type to just stick the foot out? Exactly. Yeah. Um, the trip, the schemer, the one who's constantly plotting. How could I make this person fall down and look like an idiot? All right? The schemer. That's, that's the second jerk-like response, the person who schemes. Now, schemer, that's not a biblical word. That's my word. 
And UrbanDictionary.com, which is a very fine dictionary uh, to check out, very, very, very good, um, it defines schemer as someone always trying to pull a fast one or get by through shady methods. That's what I mean by, by a schemer. Now, the Pharisees in the next scene here, they are, they are the, the schemers. And so kids, they're the ones that are sticking their foot out and trying to trip Jesus up, all right? The Pharisees are conspiring against Jesus, and they're scheming against him. So let's, let's go on. It's still the Sabbath day. It's the same day, and Jesus is moving on. He goes into the synagogue, and in verses 9 and 10, when he's in the synagogue, there's this man who's in there with a withered hand. And these trippers, these schemers, they have this idea. Let's see if we can get him to heal on the Sabbath. Then we got him. Then we will prove that Jesus is an unworthy Messiah. Then we will prove that Jesus is not actually who he says he is. Let me read it. He went on from there. He entered the synagogue, and a man was, was there with a withered hand. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, let, check out Jesus' logic, the way he responds. Jesus says, verse 11, he says, if you have a sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, would you, would you rescue him? And actually, check this out, according to the law, the answer is yes, it's okay to rescue a sheep that had fallen into a pit. And then he says, if you would save a, a, a sheep, how much more value is a human being? And then he looks at the man and he says, stretch out your hand. And he healed him on the Sabbath day. Jesus, again, he's showing us the logic of God. The Sabbath is a day of life, it's a day of giving. And my, my point here is that the, the, the schemers couldn't trap him. You know, Satan's age-old scheming mechanism, it worked against Adam. He got Adam. Adam fell. He, he tested him. He schemed him. He, he tricked Adam and Eve. And they, they ate of the fruit and they fell. And here comes, this is why, by the way, we call Jesus the second Adam. Because everywhere that the first Adam falls, the second Adam stands. So the schemer comes along trying to trip up the second Adam. And guess what? Can't get him. He can't get him if you're not a Christian here. One of the reasons... Uh, that, that we believe that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah is because according to the evidence, no one had anything against him. No one could ever find any fault in him. He was holy. He was sinless. Absolute perfection. Not a drop of sin was in him. This is the response of the schemers. They're, they're constantly looking for ways to dismantle Jesus. They're constantly looking for ways to find failures with Jesus. They're constantly looking for fault within Jesus. And I see this a hundred different ways in the community. In the city, among skeptics, people who are constantly saying, well, Jesus can't be this because of this. Jesus can't be God because of this. Jesus 
if, if, you, if you understand really kind of what's going on, and they're, they're constantly scheming, trying to find ways to show that Jesus is an unworthy Messiah, that he isn't good enough to actually save us. No, Jesus is a worthy, a worthy Messiah. <clears throat> the schemers, they seek to dismantle Jesus. They seek to prove that he is not who the Bible says he is. That's the response of the schemers, and they'll do that also, by the way, with his bride, the church. The schemers will constantly find ways to scheme against the bride and to show that the bride is a fraud. They'll constantly scheme and seek to find ways to rob the gospel witness from the true church and to show that the true church is not actually what you think it is. They'll constantly try to find ways to scheme and to show that the true church is filled with hypocrites, with sinners. Those of us part of the church, we would say amen to that. And that's why we need a Savior, because we're all hypocrites and sinners, right? But the schemers, they seek to find ways to dismantle. They seek to find ways... Sometimes, by the way, schemers, these are often the people who have even made it into the ranks of membership within the church. These are wolves who have put on clothing that looks like that of a sheep. And they've entered into the membership and they find ways to scheme within the church and create divisions within the church because they love disunity. They love it when there's people that are angry with each other. They love it when they can get together and talk about the elders or the leadership of the church in a negative light. They love it when people are taking sides. That excites them. Unity for them is boring. The idea of a members meeting where we all sit together and everybody just agrees, oh, that was boring. Not going back to that. Where's the fighting? Now, these are the people that love to fight in business meetings. These are the people who love to throw down their papers and slam the door as they walk out. The schemers, trying to dismantle the church from within. Second jerk-like response to Jesus. Now, in, in contrast, in contrast to all of this, um, what we see is Jesus. So here are the jerk-like responses to Jesus, and I think it's interesting that Matthew himself, uh, after these jerk-like responses, he just simply lifts up Jesus. I want you to treasure Jesus this morning. Do you know why people for 2,000 years have just fallen on their knees from all religious backgrounds and from all economic and, so uh, and social backgrounds and from all over the globe? Why it is that people give up what they're clinging to, they turn from their sin, they embrace Jesus, it's because they find Jesus to be remarkable. They find Jesus to be appealing. You know, I was even praying as I was uh, preparing to preach this, and I asked God, I said, help me to make Jesus appealing as I preach this text. And then I was convicted with my own words because I don't need to make Jesus appealing. He already is appealing. I just need to show you that he's appealing. And that's what Matthew does next. He just simply shows us that Jesus is more appealing than the schemers. He's more appealing than the judgmental folks. So let's just close as we, as we look 
at Jesus here. So, verse 15, what happens is Jesus steals away from the crowd. As he knows that they are beginning to conspire against him. And by the way, just on a serious note here, we are taking a turn in the Gospel of Matthew and we're now moving toward the cross. The Pharisees are scheming and plotting against him and this will finally end on that Good Friday. And so it's not his time yet. So he steals away and and Jesus is now followed by a multitude and Jesus is healing all of these people in response to the Pharisees, in response to the schemers, those who harm, those who try to, try, try to tear down, Jesus brings life and he heals. And then Matthew here, he quotes Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 3. You see this in verses 18 through 21, that little bracketed section in your Bible. He quotes Isaiah, and this is a, what we call a fulfillment passage. Matthew loves to show how Jesus fulfills what was prophesied of old. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. And here Matthew says, yet another fulfillment we see. Let me just read it to you. I'm reading out of Matthew 12, but I'm actually reading Isaiah 42. It says this, Behold, my servant who I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. By the way, Gentiles, a.k.a. non-Jews, for the sake of this text, the outsiders, the broken, those who don't follow our traditions, those who have no hope. Jesus will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Look at at this. A bruised reed. Do you guys know what a reed is? Uh, Picture a pond. Picture like uh, cattails. Is that what they call cattails? Remember cattails? Anybody ever been to a pond? Uh, A cattail is kind of on a reed. That's kind of what I picture. A reed. It's like a small little stick, if you would, coming out of the ground. A bruised reed. We are described as bruised reeds. Bruised meaning it's bruised, like something's hit it. It's about to break. It's about to fall over. It's about to fall in half. The the Christian is described as a bruised reed. We're We're not an oak. We're not a big old maple tree. But no, we are reeds, and not just reeds. We are bruised reeds. And the prophet Isaiah says that this one coming, he will not break the bruised reed. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. In the ancient world, they had these pots in order to provide light. And there was some oil in the bottom, and they would lay a wick on it. And as the wick would go out, imagine you don't have any matches left, and and the wick just begins to smolder. And there's now just smoke coming up. You don't even see the flame. Well, we are described as smoldering wicks. Our faith is not like a big blaze. Our faith is that of like a little tiny spark creating a smolder on a, on a wet wick. That's who, that's who we are. That's how strong our faith is. We're smoldering. We just have a little bit of faith. And we're not even sure if, if, if it's going to flame up. He says a smoldering wick, he will not quench. He won't put it out. He won't say, I'm done with this wick. 
I'm over it. He won't quench it. And he won't break these reeds and he won't quench this, 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 or, uh, this, this wick until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles, the outsiders, will hope. He is the hope for those who are hopeless. I tried to create a fire in my backyard. I'm really bad at, at making fires. I, that's why I, I buy these now, uh, whenever I try to do a fire, I buy these, like, pre, uh, these little logs that you buy at Home Depot. You just like a little spark and, you know, no, no effort whatsoever. But if I take an actual, like, log and try to light it on fire, I'm really bad at it. All right, so I was trying to create this little fire in my little pit in the backyard, and, and, um, and I used, uh, like, probably two full newspapers. <laughs> I mean, it was f mostly the, the pot was just full of newspaper. It was ash um, and uh, whatever little sticks I could find, and I was on my last match. This is it. So, so look at my kids. This is it. <laughs> Might be going in after this. Lit it up. Try to get it going. A little tiny little flame, little spark, and just a smolder. And I'm looking at the smolder. I'm blowing on it, trying to get something to come out of it. Is there any hope for my little flame? Will my little flame ever become a blaze so that we might sit around the fire and enjoy it? This is how we are described in our faith. Just a little smolder. Is there any hope for us? I feel like my flame is about to go out so easily. I feel like just a, a little bit of wind or a little blow is just going to put me out completely. I feel like any little pressure, any, any little stomp on me is going to put out my flame. What is my hope? Well, it's in his name the Gentiles will hope. Our hope is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will not put out the smallest flicker of faith. He will never stomp out the, 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 the smoldering believer. And he will continue to nurture this little smoldering faith. And he will continue to protect this bruised reed until his foes are crushed beneath his feet. And in his name, all of the outsiders find hope. Two applications for you this morning. Number one, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He is like none other. Hold him up against every other religious head, and Jesus rises above them all. He is like none other. Jesus is infinitely holy, yet he is patient with sinners. Jesus is the very image of the invisible God, yet he invites you into a relationship with him based on his grace. Jesus is the king of kings, yet he protects the weakest reed. He is the Lord of lords, yet he will never stomp out the smallest flicker of faith. Number one, friends, come to Jesus. 
Flee to Jesus. Run to Jesus. And you will find in Him someone that is so glorious and someone that is so magnificent and you will find the very forgiveness of your sins. The relationship with God. Secondly, don't be a jerk. Don't be a jerk. In an effort to clean ourselves up or in an effort to clean up others, we often default into condemnation or criticism or nagging or a temper or harsh words. Friends, don't be a jerk. Jesus has been so gentle with you. Be gentle with others. May your response to sinners look like his response to you. Yes, we speak the truth, right? Speak the truth. How? In love. We restore, yes, how we gently restore. Friends, don't put on sinners one more ounce than Jesus puts on them. Be patient with sinners as Jesus was patient with you. Be gentle with sinners because Jesus gentle is gentle with you. Hope in him. In him the outsiders find hope. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the Jesus that this text lifts up and shows us. We ask, God, that we might come to Jesus this morning, that we might follow his example of gentleness and patience with those who are struggling. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.